0: But but now we see how the enemy works, because in the middle of all those victories that Israel's experiencing, the enemy corrupts the heart of one person, and that person's name is Achan. Achan ignores God's command. He disobeys God's specific instructions, and in chapter 6, verse 18, we see what God had told them, that they shouldn't take anything from Jericho that he had banned. He had a list of things that that they couldn't take. And he said, if you do this, it's going to invite my discipline and it's going to invite trouble because it's mine. Everything is the Lord's. And you know, we're kind of really living out that spiritual principle this morning with this auction. I don't know your comfort level with it, but, but we're trying to raise money internally with things we already have To go out into the neighborhood and give these gifts to people and to share the love of Christ. And some of you have brought items that are very valuable and very sentimental. And it's been a sacrifice for you to do that. But you're honoring the Lord and you're saying, Lord, this is is yours anyway. And I'm releasing it to you because I want to invest in the eternal future of, of literally hundreds of people. You see, the more comfortable we get with holding things very loosely... And, and, and looking at things that are material and saying, that really doesn't matter for eternity. The, the more that happens, the more God will do amazing works in our midst. Because right here, God's still ready to help Israel. Everything at Jericho had gone exactly as God described, but there was a hidden problem. There was something that needed to be exposed, and we can read about it here, chapter 7, verse 1. Sons of Israel acted unfaithfully, in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now notice that the Spirit of God says, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. And that hit me again as I studied that this week because Achan was the only one that disobeyed. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that anybody else was involved in this, that, that he was the one that had the intent in his heart to steal. So I ask myself, and I hope you ask yourself, because when you study Scripture, always ask questions of the text, I ask myself, why is the nation blamed? Why does he say the sons of Israel have acted uh, unfaithfully to me rather than doing what I told them to do? Well, what does that tell us? What does that teach us out of verse 1? Well, it shows us that one sin, one life, can affect the body. Positively or negatively. This body is together. As a church, we are one body. As the church, universal. Everybody that names the name of Christ, whether they're in China or Pakistan or Korea or South America or, or Canada or wherever, anybody that names the name of Christ, is part of the body. And the body, let's just talk about our church for a minute, the body is only as strong as the weakest member. So we're accountable to each other, and we have to be in submission and accountability to each other because we're only as strong as the weakest person. And here Israel has been walking with the Lord, finally. They've been blessed by the Lord, finally. But now he says, you're responsible for the sin of this one person because that has invited my discipline. You know, the same principle holds true for the spiritual health of our marriages, for the health of our families, and for the health of this church. We're one body, and every member has an important role for its health. That's also highlighted, if you look back at verse 1 for a minute, in how the Spirit lists all the family connections to Achan. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his tribe. In other words, I don't want you to mistake who did this, because now, unfortunately, there's a stigma attached to the family. The name Achan would never be the same again. Just like some of these people we see going through scandal this morning who now have been exposed that they did this and this. We know the one person, I'm not even going to name his name in a church, but we know the one Hollywood mogul who now harassed hundreds, you know, dozens and dozens of women. Well, his name, he's a pariah now. His name will never be the same. So when you hear the name Achan, you know instantly if you're a student of the word, you know that's not a good thing. And now his family's attached to it, Carmi and Zabdi and Zerah and the whole tribe of Judah now is attached to Achan. Now, Joshua and the people, if you look at verse two, they weren't aware of the sin. And they're so confident in the Lord's leading and they're so ready to take new ground that Joshua says, all right, Jericho's done. Now let's move on to the next town on the map, which was the town of Ai. So in verse two, here's what they do. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about, you know, two or three thousand need to go up to Ai. Don't make all the people toil up there, for they are few. Now certainly the people of Ai had heard what had happened in Jericho, and they had to be kind of shaking in their sandals for what they had heard about how Jericho, the walls had fallen out, and the people had run up the ramps, and the city had been devastated because Jericho was one of the most secure cities. It's the oldest city in the world. So it was one of the most secure cities. So they knew that this was a problem. Israel was going to come to them next. Israel knew that Ai knew what had happened. So when the spies go up to Ai, and they see that the city's much smaller— Chapter 8 tells us the population was about 12,000 people. So it's a, it's a little town. And they see uh, and they think about what happened in Jericho. Their conclusion is when they come back, they say, you know what? We don't need to send everybody. This is not, this is going to be cake. Look, Jericho was a big deal. The priests and the ark and the soldiers and we all marched around in six days and the seventh day we marched seven times and we blew the trumpets and shouted and the walls fell down. and That was, that was awesome. But Jericho was a big deal. This is crummy little AI. 12,000 people. This will be, be cake. Let's just send a couple thousand. We'll take care of this. You guys stay here. Now there are a couple significant mistakes in this line of thinking. And I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. Because these are things that we tend to do sometimes that get us into trouble. And it's kind of a classic response when, when things are going well that we don't continue to trust. And we don't continue to pray. And we don't continue to say, Lord, we're dependent on you. As soon as the good happens, many times as believers, we just jump right into well, everything's going to be fine. So let me give you a couple mistakes that they make here. First of all, they're too quick to be overconfident. After generations of spiritual failure and lack of dependence on the Lord, you would think that they would get this. One of the reasons that you and I need to be grounded in the Word, one of the reasons we need to study this Bible every single day One of the reasons that we need to go before the Lord in prayer and confess every day is so we don't fall into assumption mode. And what is assumption mode? Assumption mode has four characteristics. One is taking God's grace for granted. Not being awed every day when we wake up that God loves us, that God forgives us, that God cares for us, that he gives us his spirit, that we're secure forever. Just kind of gliding over that and going about the things on our list for that day because we're so busy. That's, that's step one of assumption mode. Step two is not feeling the need to die to self and be cleansed every day. Letting sin just kind of exist. And then step three is concluding that the past blessings will automatically translate into future blessings. That because God did it before, that we can just assume that now he'll do it again as much as we want him to. Step four is not thanking the Lord or asking him or trusting him for fresh help. See, Israel fell into assumption mode. Well, we got out of Egypt we got through the desert. We got across the Jordan. We defeated Jericho. So now we can just assume that everything is going to be exactly how we want it to be no matter what we do. Mistake number two. They're too quick to miss the fact that the Lord hadn't given them instructions this time. If you look back at the last chapter, you remember that God was real specific about how they were t- supposed to take Jericho. But you'll notice the absence of that in verses 2 and 3. God doesn't get Joshua and say, all right, next town is Ai. This is how I want you to approach Ai, and, and, and you're going to attack with this many people, and we're going to go this way, and, and this is how victory is going to come. And the fact that there was an absence of the Lord's voice should have stopped them in their tracks. They should have said, wait a second, we've got the plans that we think are good, but we haven't asked of the Lord yet. So before we do anything, let's ask the Lord what's going on. And and we haven't heard from him, so we need to hear from him. Listen, if you and I aren't hearing the voice of the Lord, that's not a license to just go ahead with our plans. It should stop us and sober us and say, wait a second, I can't take the next step until the Lord approves of this. So Lord, I'm going to go to you, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to wait for you to lead me. Third mistake. They're way too quick to forget how specifically the Lord had led them last time. Now, if God used such an unorthodox method, you remember we talked about how strange a method this was to put the women and the children out there with the soldiers, completely exposed, marching around the city in silence every day, it didn't make any sense. So if God had used that kind of unorthodox plan before, which was completely successful, who knew what he wanted to do in Ai this time? They should at least ask him. They should at least say, Lord, is this a conventional battle? Or are we going to, you know, hop on one foot this time? Or are we going to walk backwards? Or are we going to send people here and people here? I mean, not making a mockery of what God's doing, but just saying, what, what is it this time? We're anxious to see what you're going to do. Instead, they become self-sufficient. Ah, let's just send a couple thousand. We're good. AI's smaller. It's a pushover. We'll be fine. And that leads to mistake number four. And I think this is a big one. The more I study Joshua, the more I'm impressed by this. They are way too quick not to send everybody. They're way too quick not to be all in. You know, that seven-day march around Jericho was memorable because everybody was there. Every member of the nation was walking in silence. And when the walls fell, every single person, remember, they went straight ahead. Everybody went in and took the city. So they may, as they go to Ai, they may want to start with everybody. And if God wants to pair them back like he does with Gideon and Judges 6, then so be it. But until then, they're all in. But look back at the text. Notice their reasoning in verse 3. Ah, don't make everybody toil up there. Look, we're tired. It's been a long journey. We need a break. We need some rest. This this does not require... The spies are saying, this does not require our full investment and our full engagement. And not only do the spies say that, but Joshua and all the leaders and all the people agree that it's the right move. Now, after what they had learned at Jericho, after what they had experienced, it's hard to imagine for me how quickly they could have come to that conclusion. There's a, there's a, a short-sighted arrogance here that's reflected, if you look at it, look back at verse three for a minute. It says that they say, you know what? Let's take two or 3,000. In other words, if they take 2,000, they're outnumbered six to one. If they take 3,000, they're outnumbered four to one. But they're so absolutely sure that they're going to win without praying, without hearing from the Lord, without anything that would argue this is how it's going to happen. They just say, well, look, victory's been won before, so I don't know. Let's go up. We're four against one. We're good. And they're not saying we're good because we have a mandate from the Lord. They're saying we're good because we're good, and we think it'll happen. That's another spiritual principle for our morning. We need to be so careful that we don't outthink the Lord. And even as I studied that and wrote that in my notes, I thought, what a laughable sentence that is. That I would think I can outthink the Lord. How could I possibly be more wise than the Lord? You know, Jamie talked earlier about prayer meeting on Thursday night, and I want to encourage you, really encourage you to be here. Because we're going to spend considerable time praying for this neighborhood outreach that we're going to do. We're going to pray that the people that we talk to, that we knock on the doors, that they'll receive us and that they'll welcome us. And that God will already open their hearts for that conversation. And that those conversations will be fruitful. That the little information we give them, the Bible and the gift card that we give them, that that will make an impact. And that because of that, people will come to Christ. And if they come to this church, so be it, and God bless them, and we're going to work with them and make future disciples, and the body's going to be strengthened. And we're going to pray Thursday night for city-wide revival. And we're going to do that because we don't want to assume anything. Well, look, here we're coming with our little packets, and, and this will change your life. No, God's got to move, and God's got to prepare The fact that not everybody goes, get get that really into your heart. The fact that not everybody goes is such a contrast to Jericho. At Jericho, God had been specific. I'm going to bring victory. But there's none of that here. So I ask myself, are they looking for a victory on their own? Are they trying to prove that they're self-sufficient at this point? There's no question that Israel failed at Ai mostly because of the sin of Achan. And we're going to study that in a minute. But they also made some significant mistakes in how they approached the fight and and their lack of awareness that God is not with this. God is not working at this point and and leading them. So look at what happens, verse 4. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there. But they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now the Lord's people who have been so empowered and so effective in Jericho because the Lord was helping them, now as they go to Ai, which was much less imposing and a much easier battle ostensibly, now they go up and and they have to run like dogs into the desert away from the people of Ai and as they're running away and being attacked, 36 of them are killed. But what really hit me is that last phrase in verse five. It says, "So the hearts of the people melted and became as water." What a turnaround! See, victory had been promised and proven to the Lord, so that uh, by the Lord, excuse me, so that that all of Canaan. Remember when they talked to Rahab? Everybody scared. Everybody in this city is completely intimidated. And it's said later in chapter 2 that all the kings of Canaan were, were, were terrified. They were intimidated. They were done. They knew that the battle was over That because God was behind it. They were already defeated in their minds. And we see again and again, chapter 2, chapter 3, that their hearts melted before the Lord. So now Israel, who who has the Lord on their side, they're moving forward, but they're not moving forward by the leading of the Lord and the hand of the Lord. They're moving forward with arrogance and assumption and what we're going to study in a minute with this hidden sin, and everything flips. And now instead of the people of Ai having their hearts melt and the king of Ai having his heart melt, now Israel is the one that is scared and intimidated and defeated. You see what sin does to us. Arrogant and assumption and hidden sin, listen now, will always lead to discouragement and defeat. Arrogant assumption and hidden sin will always lead to discouragement and defeat. We are instantly vulnerable when we take God's grace for granted. We are instantly vulnerable when we abuse the grace of God by being careless and cavalier about sin and just kind of saying it's not a big deal and we're not putting off the old and clothing ourselves with righteousness. We're just doing our own thing. And the enemy lies and he says, you know, come on, don't be so uptight, Don't be so rigid. You know what? And I hear this all the time. The Lord just wants you to be happy. I'd like to know where that verse is in Scripture. He wants us to be content. He wants us to be at peace. He wants us to be walking with Him and experiencing joy that is inexpressible. But nowhere in the Bible it says, God just wants you to be happy. Because when we think about happy, which is an emotion, that leads to moral flexibility. And there is not a verse in this Bible that says you can be flexible with God's commands, that, that they're negotiable, they're subjective, that you can kind of pick and choose what you want, that, that Paul, if you don't want to obey that, you don't have to, because if that's going to make you unhappy and you're not going to feel safe, well, well then you just negotiate it. And we believe that lie sometimes, and we rationalize it, and we use it to defend our actions and and our thoughts and our viewing habits and our impure friendships because we're saved, right? We prayed a prayer once years ago, and even though we're not really bearing any fruit and there isn't any strong distinction between our lives and the rest of the world, we're still okay, right? Aren't we? Because I prayed a prayer when I was 10, so I'm covered, I'm good. The Lord shows us in Joshua 7 how deceptive and wrong that line of thinking is. And look how easily believing it starts to affect our thinking and our view of the Lord. Look at verse 6. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, notice now, we're going to look at this in a minute. Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Doesn't that remind you of the desert? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel's turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they'll surround us and cut us off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? I added the emotion because I think this is just full of self-pity. Just full of misguided thinking. When they're defeated, Joshua and the leaders initially do the right thing. They go to the Lord, they humble themselves, they put dust on their heads as a, as a symbol of repentance and mourning. But what Joshua says next shows that they're looking externally for the source of the problem rather than internally. And we might look at that and say, well, what's wrong with that? That's a logical line of questioning. These are the kinds of questions that we ask when we're struggling. But when we dig deeper into it, we realize just how insidiously subversive it is. How the questions that are being asked here, you know, if, we ever, if you ever hit a wall like this and, and you see that there's not victory... Instead of saying, well, God, why did you do that? We need to look internally and say, what am I not doing correctly here? Where is my thinking misguided? Because these questions, and I want to encourage you to write them down, these questions look at the wrong source for the problem. Look at the questions. There are three of them. Number one, God, why did you put me, why did you put us in this situation? Why did you allow this, Lord? Why why did you put us in a situation where we weren't going to be successful? You know, that is a subtle statement that God is somehow unaware, unfeeling, and misguided in how he's treating us. Be careful. Lord, why did you allow this? Why, Why would you put me in this situation? Question two. And why didn't we just do what we thought was better? This really harkens back to their forefathers saying when they were so frustrated, you know, it'd be better to stay in Egypt. And apparently, by asking this question, Joshua and the people have had discussions. You know, it probably would have been better if we had just stayed on the safe side of the Jordan. We spent the last couple of weeks just studying how wonderful God's plan was and how he kept his promises and how his provision was literally miraculous again and again and again and how they're experiencing victory after victory after victory. But as soon as they have one problem, as soon as they have one failure, what happens? Well, we should have done it our own way. God, why are you doing this? I can't believe you would allow this. Why are you doing this? You know what? My way would have been better. I pray that you and I will guard against that line of thinking. Because the Lord is constantly promising and providing victories for us over sin, over fear and doubt. And discouragement. He's promising victory over her enemy who wants to destroy us. He's probably uh, promising victory and providing victory over our questions and our confusion about our future. And he's providing victory over our needs. And he's providing victory over the work of the opposition as we go out and make disciples. So as we look at our life now and we look at our old life, there should be absolutely no regret about the old life. So many times we're like, Lot's wife, well, I just wish it was easier and I wish I could go back to how it used to be because life was great. No, you were going to hell. There was no hope, no confidence, no joy, no contentment, nothing. Without the Lord, there's none of that. Uh, We pine after it. Oh, we just stayed on the side of the Jordan. The battle is the Lord's and the victory is ahead. And we need to march forward in full holiness and full confidence looking unto Jesus. So they ask, why are we going through this? Then they say, we should have done what we thought. And then question three, and this one I think may be the worst. We're embarrassed. And Lord, it's really your fault. So what are you going to do to stand up for us? This is, this is horrible. What a disgrace. We went up with 3,000. We lost 36. We had to run through the desert like crazy people. We came back here out of breath, and, and we just don't understand. Lord, we're embarrassed. We've been, we've, been, we've been disgraced. And you know what, Lord? It's your fault. So Joshua asks at the end, it seems like a noble prayer, but it's not. What will you do for your great name? How are you going to defend yourself at this point? You know, this mindset of self-pity has its roots in that word, the word self. It assumes, listen now, that God somehow owes us that he shouldn't allow us to experience any difficulty or any disgrace because it makes us look bad. You know, I've experienced some, some moments of real public ignominy in my life, and it took years and multiple instances to understand that God's not being unfair and God's not being uncaring. In fact, it's just the opposite because the Bible says whom the Lord loves, he does what? He disciplines. It says that the trying of my faith is designed to make me more complete. To be more like Christ. To learn what it is to trust and be patient and be dependent. That, that's for a purpose. So when trouble comes and difficulty arises and there's not a victory, instead of saying, well, God, you blew it. We should say, what needs to change in me? Because you're always sufficient and you're always faithful. And there must be some hidden problems in me that need to be revealed and dealt with. And that's what's going on here. And I love how the Lord responds. He doesn't go, well, Joshua, it's okay. You just didn't understand what's going on. And you know what? Let's just sit down and discuss it and have a little talk. it'll, it'll, It'll be good. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Joshua, get up, because I want you on your face. I want you to call on me, but I want you to do it with the right heart and the right motive and the right request. And let me tell you something. Right now, all of those are wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Look at verse 11. Israel sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they've even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they've also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless, look at this, unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst, rise up consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, these are the things under the ban in your midst of Israel. You will not stand before your enemies until you've removed the things under the ban from your midst. The Lord says to Joshua, the nation sinned. Because of Achan's actions, he not only stole, but he put the stuff among his possessions. So here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to be with you until you destroy what's offensive to me. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to be with you until you get rid of the evidence of your disobedience. You won't be able to stand against your enemies. You'll be weak, helpless. You'll have to run. You'll wonder what's going on. So you need now, Israel, chapter 2, you need to consecrate yourselves and stand against this sin. What a spiritual principle that is for us. God's not going to be with us. He's not going to help us. He's not going to pacify us. If we are holding on to things that are offensive to him, he's going to say, you want to hold on to that? That's more important than me? Fine. You're on your own. You get to fight the battle, and you're not going to win. The only way to change that narrative is to consecrate yourself. You know, this morning, our our kids, and you've seen them dressed up maybe, they're having this special event. Uh, there, when you go back, you'll see all the kids in medieval clothing and all the helpers are in their middle-aged dress. It's so cool. <laughs> Look what they've done. But the reason we're doing that today is this Tuesday, as Jamie mentioned, is the 500th anniversary of the day when Martin Luther posted the 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. This was considered to be the start of the Protestant Reformation. The reason there needed to be A reformation was because at the time the Catholic Church was allowing theological and practical corruption to infiltrate their ministry. They were teaching that salvation could be achieved through good works, and then as an add on to that, they started selling indulgences. You may not know your church history, you may, but indulgences were certificates that said that you could reduce the temporal punishment of a person's sin or that it would count as kind of good behavior for somebody who is in purgatory because they believe that there's a middle stage. So so by buying this indulgence, that that you can either have some of your sins relieved, or you can help out those that are waiting to go to heaven in purgatory and kind of shorten their time. Now the problem really became acute when the Pope who was trying to raise money using the indulgences to renovate St. Peter's Basilica in Rome when the Pope started to say, you know what, I'm able to forgive punishment for sins. And like Augustine a thousand years before him, Luther quickly... Argued that that's not right, that that only God can forgive sins by His grace, and that that doesn't happen through good works. It only happens through Jesus Christ. It only happens through repentance and trust in Jesus Christ, and then God pours out His grace on us and we're forgiven. That's the only way it happens. So he says this this concept of selling salvation, this concept of, of indulgences, is leading people to avoid repentance. Because if I can go and I can buy this, and, I, and it'll kind of be a get-out-of-jail-free card, or I can lessen the time for somebody in purgatory, well, why would I repent? All I have to do is come up with some cash and buy the certificate, and I'm good to go. So Luther said this can't happen. So he posted a list of 95 statements for discussion. And he challenged the fact that the Roman Catholic Church was doing the wrong thing. Now, those issues weren't exactly hidden. It was right out in the open, but it wasn't being confronted. And you know, I believe, my time's short, but I believe in many ways that we face the same type of situation today with some of the theological and practical deviations that exist in the American church. In many ways, we have sold our doctrine, and we've sold our convictions, and we've sold our witness For the sake of being relevant and similar to the culture. And I think the Spirit is exposing this like Aiken's stash. But I also believe that that not only has the evangelical movement uh, given into it, but I think we've embraced it under the guise of church growth. And if that seems too harsh or too overstated, the evidence is in the fact that our culture is more openly carnal, more openly hostile more openly willing to accept doctrinal deviations of the Bible, and now that is quickly infiltrating people professing to be Christians, and it's infiltrating high-profile churches, now are, are embracing biblical deviation of doctrine. And there's no way in the world that we can look at our country this morning and say, we are going through a profound spiritual revival. And unlike Achan, our problems are out in the open, and there seems to be very little concern. And what's sobering about that is if we don't confront it and confess it and deal with it, the Lord's going to confront it for us because God will always attack what is hidden and hold us accountable for it. And That's exactly what happens here. So let's finish because the kids are coming in a minute. What does it teach us? It teaches us that nothing's hidden from the Lord. The Bible says everything will be revealed. God knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows the sins we have hidden. And he will remove what is disobedient and hindering his blessing. But he wants us to do it first. By the time God gets involved, we're not going to want to experience it. Because God will deal with it in a significant way. The Lord removes In order to cleanse, it's what happened at the cross. Christ took my sins, he took your sins, they were crucified. And when we trust in Christ, when we confess our sins and believe in Christ as our Savior, God removes the sin, he erases all record of the sin, and then he cleanses us with the blood of Christ. So we're washed white as snow. It's not partial, it's complete. And I thought about this in terms of my own life. When, when I'm going to clean up the kitchen counter, I have to get everything off to, to get the dirt, right? You can't just take the cloth and go around what's on the counter because then when you remove the item, what happens? you got junk underneath it. If you need to clean your fridge, and many of you do today, this afternoon, you don't just pull out a couple items. What is that and when is that from? Okay, that's, let's not even keep the Tupperware. Don't even wash it. I'll just throw it in the trash. I'm done. So it's worth the 80 cents to not have to open that. When I clean out the fridge, and some days I get in the mood, I completely clear off the counter, and I pull everything out. And then I spray and wipe and clean and disinfect. Because that's how we're supposed to cleanse, right? You have to pull everything out. That's a spiritual principle for us every day. David says, search me and know me, Lord, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And that mitigates against lackness and indifference and tolerance of hidden wickedness. And that's important because two more verses. i got to pray. Look at verses 24 and 25. And Joshua and all Israel took Achan, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. That's not a very PC ending, is it? That doesn't sound very nice. And yet, this is what has to happen to sin because sin infects us. And if there's going to be victory, if we're going to have spiritual victory in our lives, that sin needs to be exposed and it needs to be cleansed. It needs to be out in the open. And that's why the Lord gives us confession, that's why the Lord gives us prayer because we can go right to His throne of grace and we can say, God, I'm guilty cleanse me, remove it, purify me, change my heart. And when we do that, God puts a fresh calling in our lives. So the kids are waiting. We're just going to take two minutes. And I want us to close our eyes. And I want to encourage you right now, don't be distracted. Don't zip up your Bible, put it away. Don't get ready to go. Just just be still before you and the Lord, before me and the Lord. What problems are hidden that need to come out? God is gracious. God is loving. God is merciful. So confess to him that sin. Confess to him that pride, that rebellious attitude, that fear, that laziness, that wrong priority. Just lay it before him right now and ask him to forgive you and cleanse you.